So I'm walking onto campus. You hear the roar of the Lodge Freeway behind me. I'm walking past St. Andrew's Hall, this old church building at Wayne State that has been converted into meeting space. Everything looks pretty normal, except for the fact there aren't very many students around. But in reality, there are some. And it's uh, patrons like ours that are enabling Motor City Wesley to still be present in person and online with students and faculty and those connected with, with campuses across Metro Detroit who still want to create goodness and explore their faith through action. We want to give a shout out at the beginning of our podcast this, uh, this season to our top patrons. First, to the Dearborn First United Methodist Church Missions Group, who's interested in partnering and with student projects as they get underway. Next to uh, the Birmingham and Berkeley First UMC Young Adults, as they continue to gather young people from uh, across Metro Detroit with a lot of creative and engaging activities give a shout out to them. And lastly, our partner, the NOAA Project, who receives so many of your um, prayers and donations and volunteer time, uh, is also supporting Motor City Wesley so that we can engage students in helping them get their story out to the world. You can find them all online. I encourage you to follow our patrons, to say thanks to them for uh, helping the church reach communities on campus and beyond to create goodness, to create conspiracies of kindness, and to continue the story even during a time of quarantine. Thanks, friends. Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, Uproar Live. Uh, my name is Carl Gladson and I get to serve as the uh, producer of Creative Conspiracies with Motor City Wesley. We support students in their um, efforts to create communities of justice and equity, uh, create projects that bring goodness into the world and to surround that all in a, um, a process of kind of spiritual development and growth. And uh, it's a great joy to be a part of that. We've been going since 2009 and uh, we are excited to uh, look into all the ways that, uh, and all the places around Metro Detroit that are gathering students, particularly in new ways right now during the COVID-19 crisis, where we've got a lot of students in town who may be doing school uh, on campuses elsewhere around Michigan or the world. So um, we are here in person and we're kind of just reaching out our hand of support to any of those students and other campus ministries around who uh, need that kind of in-person touch here here in the city. One of the ways that we're excited about um, gathering people uh, in virtual and hopefully in-person settings when we can are through these teach-ins and through our partnership with G's Magazine. And today we get uh, the wonderful opportunity to talk with folks from G's and panelists uh, and guests uh, about the recent issue um, CO2 Conspirators Communing with Trees. Uh, so I want to introduce Kateri and Lydia who are going to uh, tell us a little bit more about what we'll talk about today. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Carl. 
It's lovely to be with this circle and um, wish we were all in physical space with one another, but um, grateful for this time together. Um, I'm Lydia Wiley-Kellerman and the editor of G's. Um, and G's, for those who don't know, is a quarterly ad-free print magazine at the intersection of art, activism, and spirit. Um, at best, we offer a prophetic and provocative voice for the institutional church and a pastoral presence for those that are labor laboring on the front lines of social change. Um, and I'll let Kateri say a little bit more about this particular issue that came out this summer. Sure. Thanks, y'all. Um, it's great to be here with all of you in the circle and everyone watching. Um, I'm Kateri. I'm the associate editor and circulation manager for G's. And we're going to talk about our summer issue, um, which is on trees. And so you can see it's we're a primarily print magazine, but we do um, list a few articles from each issue online, which is on the screen right now. Um, so when we were planning themes for this issue, uh, we, we it was, this was before the pandemic, before uprising, um, and we had wanted for a long time to do something focusing on trees and started going through this process um, before so much of the world has, has turned around on its head. And for us, this issue was a really grounding way through all of the, the madness of the last few months. Um, and we've gotten a lot of feedback from readers too that, that it's been a similar thing even in the midst of all of it. Um, so we ended up through the pitches that we received and that we were working with, we ended up sort of discovering these multiple ways of describing um, how we relate to trees or how we might view them. Some of the categories um, that we worked with are uh, trees as kin, trees as prophet, trees as medicine, trees as haven, trees as witness, and trees as beings. Um, and the, each, each of the uh, sections in the issue has uh, pieces and artwork and, and poetry from each of those ways of relating. Um, and of course, there are so many more. But for this podcast, we're going to focus on trees as kin in particular. And we think that through all of this that the world is going through right now, this is particularly important, um, even though it feels there's so much urgency in the world right now. It feels um, like such a slow process at times. Um, we feel that it's, it's going to be really important for all of us to be focusing on. So we're really excited to have two folks um, here with us who wrote on this topic and we think can speak to it from, from each of their own perspectives and lives. So I'd just like to ask each of you, uh, Jim and Adrian, to introduce yourselves. And you can just say a little bit about um, where you're broadcasting from, maybe how you've been spending your time the last few months, and anything else you'd like to share about your life. So let's, let's start with Adrian and then we'll pass it to Jim. Sure. Uh, so my name is Adrian Downey. Um, I am broadcasting from Canada, from uh, beautiful, sunny Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, on the east coast of uh, Canada. And it's the unceded and unpurchased territory of my brothers and sisters, the Wallistook Nation, who are the people of the beautiful and bountiful river, uh, which is the river that runs through our province. Um, it was named the St. John River after uh, presumably after St. John, uh, but its original name is the Wallistook, which means the beautiful and the bountiful. Uh, and so the people who, who lived here since time immemorial, the Wallistook Nation, are the people of that river. Um, 
who live in, in, kin, in a kinship relationship with that river. And they're connected to my own people, the Mi'kmaq, uh, through a, a, a pre-contact political organization, political uh, international relationship. It's called the Wabanaki Confederacy. Uh, and so originally I'm from Nova Scotia, which is a, another province in Canada, but uh, our peoples uh, share a long history together and a long history of, of kinship as well. Oh, and I guess, I guess what I've, I've been doing recently is reading a lot of books. <laughs> I'm a PhD student, so uh, I've been doing that kind of thing for the past couple months. Thanks, Adrian. We can pass it over to you, Jim. Yeah, so um, thank you for the invitation to be here with everybody. I'm coming from Detroit. Detroit, uh, Anishinaabe territory, also Wendat, Huron, Salt, Fox, Miami. Um, Detroit is a word that designates the river as a strait. Uh, Anishinaabe groups used to call the place Wawiatanong, where it goes around. It's a big bend in the river. And I came to Detroit from Cincinnati more than 35 years ago, landed in the inner city, part of a, an activist Christian community uh, in a predominantly low-income African-American neighborhood, part of the poorest congressional district in the country at that point in time. Uh, right now, I'm tucked in to downtown in a, a grove, uh, 60-year-old locust trees, um, about eight blocks from the river. I am a, an activist, artist, uh, already have the PhD that my uh, co-presenter is seeing and uh, have been teaching um, I've been reading a lot of books as well, but also doing a lot of Zoom like everybody else and, and tired of the technology, um, but also spending time with my Filipino wife, who is also an educator, activist, and artist. Um, keeping up with our teaching responsibilities, but taking breaks and going out and being with the trees and finding real relief from the technology out among the leaves and the grass um, and a little park nearby here. Thank you both. Um, I'm wondering if each of you would be willing to read, yeah, read a short excerpt um, from your piece um, and maybe share a little bit about your experience with the tree that each of you wrote about. Maybe we'll begin um, again with Adrian, if you're willing. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll defer on the, the reading of piece because uh, I, I didn't prepare anything, but I'll, so the piece I wrote was about, um, and I'll, I'll actually do you one better and show you the uh, piece of birch bark, which is hanging there on my wall. Uh, that I wrote the, the piece about, uh, but essentially it's, you know, last spring, uh, I was doing research for 
you know, reading a lot of books on post-humanism and on um, literature in Atlantic Canada and the literary history of, of my own people, the Mi'kmaq, um, and thinking a lot about our, uh, you know, our birch bark writing system uh, and some of the, the, the history around that and some of the teachings that go along with that. So I was thinking a lot about that. And I was also thinking about discard studies, uh, the way we engage with waste, uh, kind of generally, uh, you know, Western society is, is a very wasteful society sometimes. Uh, and there's a whole movement in discard studies to think about waste. Um, and so I was walking kind of, uh, home from, from the university and there's a, a parking lot I pass through every day. And there was this piece of birch bark just kind of drifting in the wind. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. And it, it kind of stayed with me for a week and we kind of built a relationship that way where I would see it and I would think about it and I couldn't shake that feeling of all these thoughts I was having and, and the feeling it was evoking in me. Um, and so one day I just kind of picked it up and took it home. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, we, you know, uh, eventually, you know, you'll have to read the, the story to find out how it ends, but uh, we ended up co-authoring a piece together uh, the uh, birch, as I call per. Um, yes. Yeah. And so it was really, it was kind of a weird experience where it wasn't, you know, anything I expected. Um, and it just kind of, it moved me. Uh, this mm -hmm. thing that everybody was walking past that, you know, for two weeks was just there, but it was such a beautiful um, thing to me and, and meant so much and it was alive and I wanted to, to engage with it creatively and, and it wanted to engage with me, I think. So, so we, um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Let's, let's go to you now, Jim. Yeah. I come to that hour again, the afternoon sun slanting with mystery across the locust tree trunk outside my window, a young boy, playing on a neighborhood slope as the great yellow orb of day settles into the slow gate toward shadow, soon to jump off the horizon into the waiting jaws of night. The sycamore looming in warm glow and dappled opens, the boundary of flesh now a meeting of kin. With the gush of beauty pouring in my pores like a spirit rush from the other side, inseparable as a heart from its beat, comes also grief, my first taste. I have no words. It will take a lifetime. So that was a, an early moment of being overwhelmed as a child by the experience of a summer afternoon, late afternoon, anchored in a sycamore tree where both beauty and the loss of beauty made their presence known in my body. And of course, age of five or six, however old I was, I didn't have language for it. I lend my adult tongue now back to that experience. Um, but it was uh, falling across the threshold that separates us from from other species and suddenly being um, alive to a much bigger presence than the reduced colonial presence that 
that European settler folk brought with them, packaged in a tight Christiana, you know, towards that bigger self in relationship to African-American inner-city folk in Detroit, native folk here, my Filipino wife's people, but also in relationship to non-human species and among them trees, trying to recover a sense of being a big watershed person and fumbling at it and messing up all the time. Yes, thank you. Thank you both for sharing more, um, in both in, this, in the magazine and now. And sort of leading into my next question, um, which is just that both of your pieces recount um, pretty intimate experiences, um, or at least that's a word I'm giving them. You can feel free to, to say that that doesn't resonate. Um, but there are at least, experiences that are not commonly um, shared about in, in mainstream white Western culture, at least. And so I was curious just how it felt for you, or maybe even feels now, to share something about that, put it out into the public um, through the magazine. Maybe it, didn't, maybe it felt like nothing, um, or maybe there was, there was more to it. And so maybe we'll start with Adrian again, and then um, you can pass it over to Jim. Yeah, sure. Um, Jim, that was beautiful, by the way. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, so a couple thoughts kind of like jump out at me um, in relation to that. I think, so all my academic work kind of fits within that really weird niche of being extremely personal <laughs> as well as academic. Uh, and I, I carry that over in, in anything I do. And I, I try to live by the motto that personal narrative disrupts dominant narrative. Uh, and so if we think about, you know, the dominant narratives in our society around, you know, waste or around trees, you know, that they're inanimate, whatever it may be, I try to tell my own stories uh, that disrupt those notions. Um, and that's, you know, if you think about the intellectual kind of roots of that, you can think about phenomenology or feminism or critical race theory, the storytelling, the disruptive storytelling element of that. Um, I, I like to go back to indigenous traditions that, you know, uh, our story is Thomas King uh, famously wrote in, in his 2003 Massey lectures uh, that the truth about stories is that's all we are. Uh, and I think that really speaks to why we're here, those stories and, and making sense of that. So that's that's one thing. Uh, I try to be as, as transparent and live as authentically as possible. Uh, I was reminded fairly recently, got taken to task, uh, and, you know, for good reason, that uh, there's also a privilege uh, that comes with that sharing that, you know, as somebody who occupies the body I occupy, that I can afford to take those risks a bit more freely. Uh, and it's not, it's not only a privilege, it's also an obligation to do that work and to be vulnerable and to be willing to be corrected and, you know, uh, to live with an open heart uh, but also be willing to to hear the difficult truths that come with that, um, that your experiences may have hurt somebody or that somebody, you know, uh, 
may take damage with your story or may take issue with your story. And you have to be willing to hear that as well with the same open heart that you shared originally, I think. That was great. No, thank you so much. It's, it's, um, really helpful to hear about some of the, like, that this isn't a new thing for you to be sharing like that. And that this is part of ways that you're intentionally, um, doing what you see as work and maybe even obligation. So I appreciate that. Adrian, wondering if you could say a little bit about um, what, if anything, you were taught about trees as a child. Um, I think about that a lot in raising my own kids and the that that work. And um, yeah, we'd just love to hear from your your own experience. For sure. Uh, so when I think about my own upbringing, I, I spent a lot of time around trees. Um, particularly like like we had a wood fireplace in our house and that just and we were morally opposed to like buying wood from other people I guess uh, so that necessitated a lot of like working with trees uh, in, in terms of like piling logs uh, against a fence or you know even going with my dad to to kind of um, chop them up and, and to, to make firewood uh, so there was, there was that side of things. Um, there was also like, you know, um, my mother's side where, you know, it was teaching about which trees could be used for which purposes, uh, that kind of thing. So I think I wrote about it in, in the piece I had for G's, uh, about birch bark being very flammable and we would use it to start fires, uh, and things like that. Um, so those are the two major ones. I think a little bit later in my life, when I started coming back to uh, traditional indigenous teachings, I learned about the importance of, of a, a reciprocal relationship with trees, that if we take a tree from, from its home, uh, that we need to offer something in return. And so often that's uh, the tobacco offering that we give um, when we take a tree or we take something from the tree. Um, so there was that. I, I'd also, the thing that's like in my mind right now is uh, Leanne Simpson has a really great piece called Pedagogy of the Land, where she talks about uh, the sugar, uh, sugar bush trees uh, with the Anishinaabe. And uh, that's a really great piece. It talks about a consensual relationship um, with trees as well and, and learning consent from the tree and what that looks like. Um, so I, I'd highly recommend that to anybody uh, interested in that kind of thing. Thank you. Um, thanks, Adrian, for the recommendation too. I'd love to, to, we can put that also in the notes so that we make sure folks have access to that name and title. Um, and I'll, I'll move on to the next question for you. It's actually about a line in, in your piece. So you wrote, uh, you write about Donna Haraway um, and um, also definitely I'll, I'll make that recommendation for folks too, um, if, if folks don't know her to, to check out her work. So you write, um, Donna Haraway is adamant that human beings must begin to make kin with the plants and animals around us. And of course, it's not just, just Donna saying that. Um, that's certainly a, a theme among so many folks right now and, and has been for so long. But you reference her work in particular. And I, I guess I'm curious um, to ask you 
where and how you see this happening today and who are you turning to um, as teachers, maybe um, both, both human and non-human? Um, any, anything you can share about that would be great. For sure. Um, Donna Haraway is like my hero, first of all. Um, but so Haraway herself has, has some really great examples of this happening. Uh, like in the real world, she talks about uh, messenger pigeons uh, and kind of the, the intimate relationship that humans build with uh, birds in that kind of a capacity. And, and she tells that story really well in her book, uh, Staying with the Trouble. And there's also, you know, numerous literary examples of this. And, and Donna Haraway as well has, you know, her, her science fiction kind of uh, at the end of that book where she talks about being a symbiote with um, with animal species. Can, can you turn on? But in on the phone, so it's not searching. Oh. Should I just keep going or? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, the uh, the other piece, I think, in terms of uh, like so, kinship is a, a, a foundation of indigenous thought, and uh, there's a lot of people that write about it really well. But uh, I, I take a lot of um, learning from Daniel Heath Justice, who's a literary um, a Cherokee literary scholar, and, and writes about kinship and uh, relationality. And he, uh, one line that, that sticks out for me is uh, that idea that we can raise each other up as we hold each other to account, that they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, and so I think about that in terms of, of um, justice of all sorts, thinking about racial justice and, and having those difficult conversations with people and holding them to account, but in a way that's loving, that we also raise them up for the good that they do. Uh, and not necessarily tearing people down, but also thinking about that. So that notion of kinship and, and that idea of, of raising each other up and holding each other to account in terms of our, our non-human others. So uh, the plants that are around us, uh, you know, if they could, if they could speak and they can, of course, uh, we just can't hear them uh, in the ways that we're accustomed to. You know, if they could speak, what would they say about our relationship with them? Uh, would they be saying? Would they be consenting to to the ways in which we're engaging with them? Um, you know, would they express love, gratitude to us for you know uh, the way we're engaging with them? What would they? How would they hold us to account? To what standard of relationality of kinship would they would they hold us? So thinking about these kind of ideas. Um, you know, I'm a philosophical person, so that's the direction I go in. <laughs> in a more tangible way, I think, you know, urban farming, um, you know, building that relationship, especially at, with, uh, oh, geez, the French is in my mind, the petit enfant, the, the young children, like getting them out and, and engaging in, you know, hands in soil kind of thing, building that relationship. Uh, I think that's, that's good work and, you know, that builds that relationship for sure. I want to read a short piece from uh, Jim's piece that he writes, had I an iPhone, it would not have mattered. Any halt would have been mere idle and trap, trapping me, missing inevitably this giant other. 
Um, and just thinking about technology, which is something we think a lot about um, at G's, but how might technology be affecting our ability to grow and deepen relationships with trees and other than human world? Um, are iPhones and Google and social media only an impediment to those um, relationships and to kin making or are there ways that technologies um, can serve these relationships? Um, and Jim, if you're there and can hear us, I'd love to hear from you first. For me, technology is a, a big question, obviously in the way it's showing up right here <laughs> in our interaction with each other. Um, I am, I remember visiting my mom a number of years ago in her retirement village, assisted living. She was probably about 102 years old at that point in time. And an aide came into the breakfast room, uh, which had a number of windows on the south and east side. So the sun was pouring in at eight o'clock in the morning. And she said, those are blinds, trees freak me out. I'm scared of trees. And I was shocked and so were everybody else in the room. But I've encountered that more than once in folk who've grown up in the city and whose relationship is so technologically mediated that actually having a relationship with a wild creature like a tree is frightening to them. I, I think the one other I would say is that we're in a dilemma right now with COVID-19 having to rely on technology to try to do tracking and to address the public health dimensions of the crisis on the one hand. On the other hand, that's ratcheting up the ability of the state to do surveillance and to uh, tighten its grip on us as citizens in all kinds of ways. I was just reading a week ago about new technology, drone technology now that they will, we will soon be able to buy drones that are an inch in diameter that can carry a one gram charge that can penetrate skulls. And the article was talking about the this new AI weapons technologies that will eventually be available to everybody so that three people could wipe out a million people with only a 10% kill rate with these things. And the only way to guard them is to further increase surveillance. And the, the article was saying we might be in a situation where we have to enfranchise an algorithm as a kind of philosopher king in a world government structure to monitor what's happening with these bio nano micro technologies of webs which for me is an indication of the way the principalities and powers in their plurality compete with each other to ever more ruthlessly lock down our species and all other species in this dynamic of control so I look at that, I see that happen all sides. And for me, I don't have a lot of hope that technology at this point is an answer 
certainly it can be a tool. But the, the onus for me is on recovering face-to-face, body-to-body, breath-to-breath relationships with wild beings and with each other and relearn how to be a species on the planet in a way that's not self-destructive. Thanks, Jim. Pass that to Adrian if you've got thoughts. On- for sure. I couldn't have said that better myself. <laughs> um, it's interesting just kind of thinking out loud about this one. Um, Leanne Simpson has this notion of uh, constellations of co-resistance, and she talks about allyship between non-white people, uh, indigenous people, people of color, um, that kind of thing, diaspora peoples, uh, resisting the uh, structures of settler colonialism. Uh, dismantling them together and decentering white allyship in that process. Um, and she talks about the way social media has, has been used, but at the same time, it's implicated within all those neoliberal structures uh, of governance that, that Jim mentioned. Um, and so it's, it's complicated. And kind of where she ends with that is that we need, we can make use of those networks. Um, but nothing is will replace that on the ground co-resistance those kind of interpersonal relationships that we mobilize toward dismantling uh settler colonialism anti uh, dismantling racism those kind of things uh something else about technology that i'll, I'll kind of throw out there is um so marshall McLuhan, the kind of famous canadian media ecologist uh, says that technology a new piece of technology doesn't just uh change the world, it creates a new world. Uh, And I think I have to constantly remind myself of that, (laughs) that we can't go back, right? Like we've had, you know, our world has had access to these different technologies, whether it's, you know, that which by we are mediated today, um, this this kind of connectivity or, or not, we can't kind of retreat back to as idyllic as it, it might be, whatever time in the past that we idealize, right? It, it's always going to be something new. Um, and so I, I think that's a hopeful notion more than it is a, a dismissive one or, or a, a negative one that, you know, we have the potential to create something new. We just have to, we really, really have to take the lessons of the past into that future. Uh, we can't kind of continue the status quo. We can't try to repeat something uh, that was to make something great again that was great in the past. Um, We really have to build something new. Um, And and technology can be a part of that. Uh, It might even be the main part of that, but it's not the only part and it's not the only thing to think about. Appreciate that from both of you. And yes, it is. It's always ironic to be having these conversations um, via the screen, especially seeing how uh, much we all have to be relying on this way of of um, relating if we want to continue in the same way that we were. Now that we can't be so face to face, but um, it's good to be to be talking about it in the midst of all this. 
Hey everybody, Carl here, just in the middle to tell you a little bit about the project that we are pursuing along with support from the Forum for Theological Exploration. Motor City Villages is a chance for us to recruit, train, and place young students of color for the creation of intentional Christian communities for the purposes of vocational and spiritual discernment. We're really looking forward to this fall where we'll get our first chance to see some of this in action all the way through next June of 2021. So if you have a student at any campus in Metro Detroit, we'd love to get to know them and to tell them a little bit about how we could support them in calling a group of students together, creating a rule of life, pursuing justice and equity work, and doing the discernment around all of that experience that helps them claim God's call in their life. Be in touch with us at MotorCityWesley.org if there's a student in your neck of the woods that we should meet and call them into this mission field of Motor City Villages. We're at MotorCityWesley.org. We'll talk to you soon. So also just shifting in, in terms of what the last few months have looked like with with the pandemic and quarantine, um, one of our one of the pieces that we did get to include in the issue that is more COVID um, that was like birthed in a, in the COVID moment um, was from Nicola Torbett. It's the opening of the issue and of the section that you both wrote in, um, and she writes about an experience of going to the redwoods and asking them what they think about all of this, um, and it, it ends with them. Um, just sort of assuring her she's, she's sort of asking them uh, what this virus might mean. And um, she says, would it be better for you if we were gone, we humans? And she says they were dumbfounded by the question. They said, Oh honey, only a human could even conceive of such a question. We would never desire or imagine we could benefit from your death. That's your kind of thinking. So there's, much more um, that Nicola writes about in that. But I just wanted to pull that out um, as a way I think many folks, whether maybe they're naming it this way or not, have been turning to um, the outdoor world or to, to trees more particularly in these months when we have to be more isolated from each other. And I'm wondering if either of you have found yourself doing that. You've already referenced that a little bit, Jim. Um, and if there's any messages that you've been receiving that you would feel comfortable sharing. So I think we'll start with Jim now again and just see how, if that works. And then if not, we'll go to Adrian. Yeah. Um, I think what I would say is I think messages can other than what I mentioned before, uh, there's a colleague of Lily's uh, who wrote a poem um, ventriloquizing COVID-19 to us as human beings, basically saying, I'm not the enemy, I'm just the messenger. Well, and you can be well if we're not well. Uh, and the poem goes on and fleshes out that kind of message that is coming, I think, all over from the biosphere uh, that we as a species need to 
cover a sense of mutuality and reciprocity, which I think fundamentally means a sense of limitation. So the thing that I think is really on the table right now in terms of whether we as a species go extinct, along with 200 species per day going extinct with us right now, or find a viable way of being altogether on the planet, I think a big piece of that question rests with whether we're able to impose limits on ourselves um, in all kinds of ways, not least of which is, is limiting our technological capabilities, not doing everything we're capable of doing in terms of our re-engineering of the planet, but being able to impose a limit. And I would understand indigenous cultures doing that through ritual and myth. They told stories and enacted those stories in ritual interaction with uh, the non-human world in a way that effectively limited the uptake of their community members in relationship to everything else out of the understanding that the, the world is put together such that everything is eating everything else. And every time we rip a hole in the fabric of the rest of the world and we owe back in relationship to that, we owe beauty, we owe respect, we owe grief for what we've taken and the recognition that we too will be eaten one day. And I think indigenous cultures were genius at one way or another codifying that for their communities so that the community didn't get overblown in relationship to their ecological niche. Now I think we're in a situation where we have wildly exceeded our our uh, place on the planet and whether we can whether you understand that as going back or going forward into a newness, I think it it one way or another needs to make use of what indigenous cultures knew about keeping small and humble and limited. I mean, since the pandemic hit, the obvious thing that I've been kind of more aware of is microbes um, and how alive our world is beyond trees, beyond animals, beyond kind of those, those things we think of as alive, you know, um, COVID-19, the virus itself is alive and it's, uh, in very real way. And even thinking about gut bacteria or, you know, uh, bacteria on our skin, things like that, germs, these, these are living beings. Um, and so, you know, I sort of asked the question, what would those others say of how we have lived our relationship with them? Uh, you know, thinking about that reciprocity, thinking about that kinship, you know, uh, how would they hold us to account? Um, you know, what does this COVID-19 virus or a particular virus, any virus, what is our relationship to it? Is it one of fear? Is it one of hate? Is it one of, and, you know, what does that say about, uh, you know, the greater Zoe life in general? Um, so that's one thing. I'm, I saw a comment in the in the chat uh, about 
So it says there's currently a temperature study going on in the U.S. that determines uh, areas where ambient temperatures are rising. And I think about that a lot too, because it's really, really hot and dry in Fredericton right now. We've had like maybe two days of rain in the last two months. Uh, and so, and I also just finished reading Octavia Butler's uh, The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents. And so that's kind of a, a dystopian future that's not too far in the future and seems really realistic. Uh, and thinking about, you know, having a summer with like two days of rain is, is pretty bizarre for the East coast. And, uh, yeah, just worrying, I guess, about my brothers and my sisters, the trees and, and concerned that they're not getting enough water and, and wondering, you know, what can I as one person do for that, do about that? Uh, you know, I have some answers about what that action is, but, uh, yeah. I, I only have one watering can. I can, <laughs> you know. Hmm. I hear that a lot. Um, one of the things that is one of the joys of making a quarterly print magazine is that you're writing in a different historical moment than you're doing the layout and you're sending it to print in a different historical moment than when it lands in people's hands. Um, and we certainly felt that with this issue um, beginning it last winter. Um, and knowing that, that this issue was written before um, George Floyd was murdered and it landed um, in the hands of folks in the midst of the uprisings and resistance to the movements that, that continue to follow. Um, and so I'd love to hear from both of you if you think that making kin with trees um, is related to on the ground resistance work um, and how and where um, or what does or could that look like? Yeah, um, my... My response would be along the lines of what I what I have been saying, in that that I think um, there is a a deep relationship. Um, part of the way we have used discourses of race and gender to render expendable large percentages of the human species is to liken them to animals or even Mesopotamia when the first city-states arose. Laborers were talked about by the elites as a, a form of crop. Um, it was indicative of those elites uh, pulling themselves out of actual interaction with plants and animals and increasingly adopting a supremacist point of view towards the rest of the biosphere and most of the human species that they were coercing into laboring to produce surplus product for them as elites to live on. And so I, I think the issue is not um, pulling all of our species up to the level of elite ways of living and thinking. Uh, that's patently impossible for 
uh, Atlanta's 7.6 billion who live even the North American middle-class lifestyle. It would take three to five more planets to do that. I think the issue is rather to other direct recover a way of understanding human beings, plants, animals, even water and soil as living creatures uh, that we are living symbiotically with. Um, and at that level, uh, relating well across differences inside our species that we've made related to race, gender, class, sexuality, is all of a piece with relating well with ways we differentiate ourselves from the non-human world. And I think the two are intimately related. I, I would say one last thing. On the other hand, I do think it's necessary to take seriously what, what we've had to come to grips with or having to come to grips with with the environmental movement that it has so far in in the Western world styled itself in terms that are primarily white and middle class has not been conversant with the efforts of indigenous people for centuries and dismissive of those efforts in many cases um, so that Yes, there's a way in which even all of this concern for trees, among other things, can easily one more time reproduce race and class realities. So I'll, I'll jump right in there if I can. Um, because kind of my response to that really uh, picks up on that last point Jim made, if, if I heard it correctly. <laughs> Uh, so if I didn't, please, Jim, feel free to correct me. Um, but there is a long history of, of kind of uh, white environmentalism uh, that has not looked at the intersections of race and class and, and gender and um, many of our intersections. And uh, so some of the post-human work that's coming out, particularly Rosie Bedoidi, works under this assumption that we are all in this together, but we are not all the same. Uh, and I really love that phrase as a way of kind of encapsulating this idea that we are all, even our, our non-human others, we are all kind of in this world together and, and we have to make sense of it and make the most of it. Uh, but we're not all the same. We don't all experience life in the same ways. Uh, some of us are impressed by various social structures in various ways. Uh, and so unity and this, this really is something I think a lot about in terms of uh, politicians in COVID-19 and the discourse that emerges from that of unity, um, that we're all in this together and we have to kind of work together. We do, sure. But let's not erase the fact that, you know, Indigenous people, people of color, um, all the various other hierarchies, uh, you know, are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Uh, apart from all the other issues of race, uh, police brutality, those kind of things. So, you know, that's when I, when I talk about moving into the future and, and not forgetting that past, I think that's really important to me that, you know, as we move forward, those are the things we have to keep in mind. 
uh, and not just in mind, but in our actions, in our thoughts, and that, you know, we don't enter into a space without first, you know, uh, uh, interrogating that space and finding out, you know, uh, what the history of that space is. And if there aren't people of color in a particular space like there's not today, uh, you know, why? are there not people of color in that space? And so uh, I'll, I'll be transparent about the fact that I was reticent to appear on this <laughs> podcast uh, without first asking the question about, you know, uh, are there other voices that might be better suited uh, to this, to this space who might, who might uh, have something different to say. Um, and, and I'm sure, uh, uh, the two people from G's here can, can share their response to that as well. Uh, but before that, the last thing I'll say is I'll, I'll return back to that notion uh, of we can raise each other up and hold each other to account, that they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that's so important uh, in our daily work, in our interactions with one another. I tell my the students I work with, uh, I teach Indigenous education and, and some kind of undergraduate teacher courses. And uh, what I tell them oftentimes is when somebody calls you out on something and somebody takes you to task uh, for, you know, being racist, being sexist, don't get defensive. Thank them. Like, raise them up because they're doing work for you. They believe in you enough to have that conversation with you. Uh, so, you know, be receptive to that. Uh, and that's, that's really hard for teachers to hear because they don't like being wrong. <laughs> but uh, it's really good advice, I think. So... Thank you, Sue, so much. I, I'm really grateful for all the the dot connecting in particular. I feel like that has gone on through this conversation. Um, it's, you know, part of why I think we were really grateful to have you two here is just the ways that you went so deep in your particular um, articles on one very particular relationship with one very particular tree, but that it's clearly that in doing that, you can bring it um, so much wider. It's, we're not just talking about trees, um, of course. And so I'm really grateful for that. And also, Adrian, grateful for you bringing, bringing this back up that, the, you know, your first response to us when we asked you to be on the podcast was asking who else um, would be in the room and was there anyone else that we could have asked to be here? Um, and I think just to say, to, to briefly respond to it on here as we wrote to you, um, when we were looking at the issue, as we do with all of them, um, we're, we're thinking about like what are conversations that could be dynamic for readers to have. And the question of, um, of whose voices we're bringing in is so important every step of the way um, as we work on our pieces. But also for us, I think um, we've realized, you know, we just did a reader survey and confirmed that our readership is so primarily white, even more than we um, maybe could have expected. And I think um, for us to get comfortable, um, we want, we, we are so prioritizing of bringing in um, both people of color's voices and experiences and also um, white folks who are trying to find new ways to live um, or maybe old ways to live in this world um, and how important it is to be bringing in voices um, like that and especially like Jim for us uh, uh, an elder in this Detroit community um, but to always be asking the question and just to have your response is so was helpful for us to know that you're holding us accountable to that um, there's lots of other ways this conversation could have looked but I'm grateful that we had you two here for this one so 
happy to say more about that at any point. Um, but I think for now, we're just wrapping up and want to ask Adrian or Jim, if either of you have anything that you would love to share briefly. Yeah, the, I would just uh, reaffirm what what's being said by you, Kateri, and you, Adrian. Um, it's just an ongoing to downsize white presence and white voices and make space for other voices to emerge. I'm not sure making space is the right way of talking about it, just simply getting out of the way um, for those voices that are already there to, to have um, wider circulation and wider presence on all our multiple media. Um, so amen to that. Last little thing I would share is uh, a tree was part of my earliest sense of empowerment. As a kid, I climbed trees all over the neighborhood. And one day my mom got mad at me for something and I ran out the door and climbed the apple in the backyard and was up about 20 feet. She was down below yelling up at me. And for the first time I realized I could do something my parents couldn't do. And even though I did get in trouble once I came down from the, uh, being able to climb that tree and be up there in it, was an experience of empowerment in a way that that was new for me as a kid and part of growing to recognize myself as a person in relationship to my parents. So thanks to a tree for that. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, just in closing, I want to, you know, in kind of that theme of, of raising up the voices of others, uh, you know, the piece I was writing uh, about Birch emerged from this, you know, 13,000-year-old literary tradition of my people, the Mi'kmaq. And there are those who carry on that tradition today uh, who do really great uh, literary work um, on kind of in uh, uh, our traditional hieroglyph system, uh, particularly works by Michelle Silboy. Uh, she had a book come out last year called I Am Ready uh, that had poetry and photography. And so I would really encourage people to pick that title up uh, to engage with it. The other one is uh, Peter J. Clare's book, uh, Doppelbagel and Bailet, um, which is a novel, really amazing novel. Uh, I think it was only the second novel ever published by a Mi'kmaq author. Uh, uh, so, you know, those two works in particular, I think people... I'll uh, I'll post them in the notes or send them to 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 folk to to send out. But uh, those two titles in particular are really good. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Thanks to both of you for the time today and the continued conversation. Um, so we want to end in gratitude for both of you and for the trees by ending with the words that Sarah Holst wrote um, for this issue that lead us in and out of the issue. Um, and so Kateri and I will read that. Find a tree. Listen with your heart and feet. The soil of your body will guide you. You'll know when you find yours. Pick with silence. Let the air in your lungs be like rustling leaves. Approach your tree gently. Ask for consent. You'll know what is right. Your tree will tell you. 
bring a gift, pick something culturally appropriate for you. I use holy water. A friend brings lavender. Be with the tree in a way that works for your body and the tree's body. Send your sorrow deep into the earth along rooted pathways. Let the tree hold that which you hold that has no name and no map. Lay in the roots, stand with forehead to trunk, or do not touch and sit nearby in a chair. Do not rush, do not do, just be. When you are ready, feel the strength run up the sappy core of your old storied companion and send your desires to the sky. Is there joy among the branches, transformation? Yell out if necessary, call, shout, sing yourself back to yourself. You and the tree are made of the same kingdom stuff. Rise slowly, say thank you, thank you, thank you. Promise to return. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, we encourage uh, all that have heard and uh, will in the archive to go and climb a tree for civil disobedience and uh, read some good stories and myths to help us grow in this wisdom. Thank you, Jim and Adrian, for sharing. Thank you, Kateri and Lydia, for hosting. And uh, here we are. We've launched another season of Motor City Wesley and with great partners like you all has, has begun. And we're looking for uh, lots of more great things. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Bye, everyone. Uproar is the brainchild of Samson Koba III. Thanks, Sam, for getting us launched on this last year. It also is our place for continuing to tell the stories of students conspiring for goodness from the heart of the city of Detroit. We hope that you'll support us at MotorCityWesley.org for as little as a dollar a month for individuals who would like to be a part of our network of young adult faith communities around Metro Detroit. Just get in touch with us, MotorCityWesley.org. We're looking to conspire with you. Cheers. Cheers.